This is the 966 episode 100. Triple digits. <laughs> That's this is big. Three digits. That's triple, triple digits. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of this, we were wondering, should we say the number at the beginning of each episode? We're on episode eight. Are we going to be doing this always? And it kind of just stuck. And now it's... Here we are, 100. Now that's the intro. It's like our, it's like like our theme. But that is funny. Yeah, when we started, I had no expectations. Yeah, no expectations. It's a hundred episodes in, an amazing journey, one that's really just beginning in a way. If you think about it, you never know what's going to happen when you try something new. We talked about this this week, Richard, reflecting back on what we have accomplished and where we're going, and we sort of. You know, we're doing a little bit of, you know, soul searching and 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 looking uh, ahead and figuring out how we can really grow this thing because the audience is growing so quickly and we love that so much and we just are so thankful. But 67 different guests over 100 episodes, you discovered, Richard, this week, 10 repeat offenders that have come back at least once. Our, our apologies. <laughs> and that's 67 and counting voices that... I feel like we have given a platform to to share their stories and insights, and many of them have been Saudis and connecting to the world, the World Wide Web around the world through our growing audience in over 100 countries. It's amazing uh, where we are, but we're not resting on our laurels. We're just uh, excited and and very pumped for what's to come. Is this cool? I, I think that's a nice way to put it. I mean, I, I, I mean. My our excitement, and I say I say mine, but I think it's shared. Our excitement is not so much um, satisfaction at the accomplishment, but sort of excitement about the potential. I mean, because it's we've talked about the network, we talk about friends making friends, making friends, and and finding interesting people, reaching out to them, getting to talk with them, and I feel like we're getting better at it, and our network is is widening and people are always been interesting, but it, it, I just feel like the potential is, is really great. That's what's exciting. I agree with that. And this growth has been almost scary because we didn't know what to expect. We did not expect this. So it's very exciting. Of course, there has been a lot of sausage making as well, Richard, some late nights, very, very late nights, a lot of, um, coordination and a lot of research and this thing is edifying for us to do but um we do really love seeing this grow and and seeing people discover value in it and it's not just our network that's growing as well richard this is a sort of i guess quasi community growing of people where we're hearing from a lot of the same people each week and we're meeting new people but other people are meeting other people through our comment section and online so it's just cool and and so anyway this is we're taking just a second here to say this is awesome and thank you and to everybody who's who's been here with us for any part of this you. journey thank you thank you thank you yes there is a community and a lot of that's to do with some of the you know you're reading the the remarks uh and the comments i think that's a, that was a great idea yes we do leave um a lot on the cutting room floor as you say we do get a lot of comments and some are just direct messages so we don't necessarily want to read those without any permission but we do get a lot of comments and it's funny because we get a lot of the same comments over and over and over again. The number one, I think pretty much is when are we getting the Arabic subtitles for this? Uh, because a lot of Saudis and a lot of people around the world that speak Arabic are a little bit more comfortable 
listening to this or, or want to get the content in Arabic, we are working on that, we promise. We do get a lot of people asking to hear about the story of the Genesis of the 966. And we kind of tease it a little bit in some of our segments. We should do that coming up, Richard, at some point. I don't think we're going to do that today. But um, a lot of people are like, who are you and why are you doing this? And uh, how did you get to know so much about this subject? So we do get a lot of that. And then I think the other comment we get a lot as well is, how are you going to expand this? Why are you only doing it once a week? And when you hear that, you're you think to yourself, only once a week. Only once. Dang. By the because way, we do a newsletter every, every day too. <laughs> we do a newsletter every day, but I do think people like the hangout version of the newsletter, which is essentially what this is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're working on all those things, and and as I mentioned earlier, we're we're working on the expansion stuff here. It's it's an exciting time, but but we just feel appreciative for everybody that's here. So thank you to everyone listening huh. and watching. Yes, hundred percent. We're really trying to grow this thing. We'll keep at it. We'll keep plugging, and hopefully, we'll be we'll be able to grow it. Indeed, and we do have a wonderful conversation coming up for the one hundredth episode. Nadia Makbul Alawatia, a leading Riyadh-based architect and urban designer, is going to talk to us about Salmani architecture and a little bit about her journey. It's a it's a subject that we've talked about on this podcast before, and she actually heard that segment and mm -hmm. was recommended to us, which was really cool. So. I just feel like this, you know, well, we're just, we're appreciative as we said, but this is just going to be a great, um, a great 100th episode. And it's a great conversation with Nadia. She's got a, she's first of all, really expert. She's got a beautiful spirit. Love the conversation. As I, as I say in the, in the conversation, it's sort of the, uh, quintessential, the 966 episode in that it wraps up, you know, uh, someone you wouldn't ordinarily have heard on a subject you wouldn't necessarily think is important, but is, and is done in a beautiful and informed, intelligent way. I mean, not on our part, it's just that she was so terrific. And and uh, I just loved it because it was a perfect hundredth in my opinion. And you know, I mean, maybe the perfect hundredth would have been, you know, you know, crown the prince, crown, the crown yeah. prince, you know, <laughs> you know, so okay, okay, you know. But uh, in terms of where we are and our growth, in terms of where we are, in terms of what we intended to do at the outset, this is a beautiful hundredth. I love it. We love it. And we should update everybody from last week. We did have the 966 inaugural golf invitational here at my home course. And old, and old Lucian showed up. <laughs> no, that's not true. We both played, we both hit some really excellent shots and any shots that we didn't hit that weren't amazing, that never really happened, to be honest. No, not in um, my mind, I've forgotten. We did have an, a blast. It was super fun. A, a drink or two was had on the course. And I think what we built there, Richard, was a new institution and a new annual golf tournament. So we're going to build on that. Uh, next year, we'll have the second annual and uh, a lot of fun. The, it um, was awesome. And and we can't we can't leave the golf top. Well, yeah, the 966 Invitational, although the name is not at, not, not yet to be determined, but Lucian hit the ball nicely. Lucian has a really nice swing, but um, he had a uh, an eagle on a par five. I mean, a, you know, a gimme putt on an eagle on a par five and what happened just recently when you were out with your buds? Oh, I I can't believe that we're going to discuss it. I'm we should. Kidding. We have to. No, of course, of course. Um, I had a hole in one. Yes. 
It was so awesome. I <laughs> uh, can't believe it. So glad that I was playing with other people so that there were witnesses to that. No one would have believed it otherwise. But yeah, um, that was really a huge moment for me, um, Richard. And uh, yeah, so I've got the ball right here, actually. And I'm keeping oh, it you? on my desk for a bit. Yeah, right here in this. And little... you know, you've got a picture of because you slammed it into the hole. It like Directly in the hole. This it ball took went. a chunk, right? Took a chunk right out of the hole, so there was no bounce in. It just was directly in. Really a cool moment. Very a very expensive moment as well, as you know, Richard with hole in ones. Um, exactly. But was so awesome. Um, and I tease you, Richard, because I was like, we have to talk about my hole in one on this episode we beforehand. <laughs> we do. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, a, was, that was so awesome. It's great you were with your buds, and you got to do. You know that old story, that old joke about. Um. And we can cut this out, but you know, the old joke about, you know, the young priest that skipped out on, on, on Sunday mass to go play golf and God yeah. and, and, and St. Peter were watching him and, you know, St. Peter's going, what, you know, are you going to strike him with lightning? I mean, what are you going to do to punish this guy? And so the young priest out there all alone, because he's skipping out on church, uh, stripes his drive on a 450 yard par four at, it takes a few bounces, goes in the hole. St. Peter goes, what are you doing? That's not punishment. And God goes, who's he going to tell? <laughs> who's going to believe the good? Yeah, or, you know, he can't tell anybody. So, you know, it, unlike you who did it with friends and you got to celebrate with friends and everybody. And on the 966, you know, we get to celebrate your hole in one. Yes. Well, thank you. It was amazing. Shout out to my boy, Eric Abel and Thomas Henry, who are now tattooed with my story for the rest of their <laughs> life. It was amazing. My friend Thomas brought out a box of cigars before the round and I don't smoke, but um, it was weird because he was like, I have a box of cigars with me. And I was like, you have a box of cigars? Like, yeah, rip them out right now. Let's go. So it was cool. So I have the flag somewhere here. I don't know where it is. But anyway. Um, oh, they give you the flag. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Oh, right here. That's there awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So I'm sure my son or daughter will use it as a napkin at some point soon. <laughs> anyway, we're sorry for talking already. Yeah, about sorry. So much we golf, we digress. Next, next year, we will be working on the 966 Invitational, uh, named TBD. But I think what we established was that that was super fun. So um, really awesome. Okay, down to business. 100th episode. <laughs> We have a we have a podcast to do. We have a podcast to to get to. Um, what's your one big thing this week? All right. Minerals and mining. We've done it before, but it's always good to touch, uh, re, you know, come back to this because it's an ongoing endeavor in Saudi Arabia. And one of the really interesting things about covering present day Saudi Arabia is that the time between when a national priority is identified and when steps are taken to address that priority is often, you know, shockingly short. I mean, in, in the U.S. by comparison, you know, has an extensive and really slow-moving legal, legislative, and bureaucratic environment that that significantly extends the time needed to first agree on a policy and then actually implement that policy. Not the case today in Saudi Arabia. Things move really fast. And this is a case in the mineral sector, and specifically with regard to, quote, critical minerals, unquote. So this is one of the nice things about the 966 solution. I get We get to educate ourselves. So what is a critical mineral? Last year, the U.S. Geological Survey released a list of 50 minerals deemed critical to the U.S. economy and national security. You can, you can uh, project this to be sort of the same for most countries. 
A critical mineral is defined, defined as a non-fuel mineral or mineral material essential to economic or national security and has a supply chain vulnerable to disruption. Critical minerals are also characterized as serving an essential function in the manufacturing of a product, the absence of which would have significant consequences for the economy or national security. So you see how all these things apply to Saudi Arabia as well. These critical minerals, of course, include the 17 rare earth minerals, rare earth minerals that are an essential part of many high-tech devices today and the energy transition. Um, do you know why they call them rare earth minerals, Lucian? I don't know why they call them that. Are they because they're rare? <laughs> well, you'd think so, but actually they're plentiful. But by nature, they don't, um, because they're geo their chemical properties, they, they, they're typically they're dispersed. So although there's an abundance of them, they're really hard to, to, to mine and capture. So hence, I don't know why it's rare earth. Maybe it should be, you know, hard to find. I don't know, hard to catch. But anyway, rare earth minerals are not necessarily short in, in availability, just hard to get. So there's a, you know, these 50, you have these 50 minerals and a lot of them are familiar, you know, you know, cobalt, lithium, uh, nickel, palladium, you know, in terms of the energy transition sort of things. Um, a little known fact, I think we've mentioned on this show before, but maybe, you know, it's something that's commonly known. Saudi Arabia is the fourth largest net importer of critical minerals. So everything I just said about the U.S., how they define critical minerals and why it matters, Saudi Arabia is in the same boat. You know, it's, it's the fourth largest net importer of critical minerals. Yet it's intending to manufacture more than 300,000 electric vehicles annually by 2030. And it, it needs minerals to support its massive green energy hub at Neom, for example, along with any number of other projects. So with regard to critical minerals, Saudi Arabia has a problem. And in, as I mentioned at the top, in typical fashion, it's sort of aggressively addressing the problem. And that's the genesis of the one big thing. Two recent developments that I wanted to note. First, in May, Maaden, and actually Maaden is the Saudi Arabian mining company, which was formed in 1997. It's 50% owned by public investment fund. It's the largest mining company in the Middle East, one of the fastest growing mining companies in the world. In 2022, Maaden had revenues of 10.7 billion. So Maaden's the real deal. We've talked about this. Um, but in May, Maaden signed a 50-50 joint venture with U.S. corporate Ivanhoe Electric to explore gold, copper, silver, and electric metals in the country. Part of the deal includes Maaden buying an almost 10% stake in Ivanhoe. And, and I point that out because like elsewhere, Saudi Arabia is tends to, their habit is not just to buy a service, but invest in a technology that furthers a key sector like this. So they're buying into Ivanhoe Electric's technology to find uh, and identify minerals. Um, second, in January this year, and this is what I mean about moving quickly. So just in January, 2023, the PIF and Maden created the Monera Minerals Investment Company, Monera, uh, to invest in mining assets globally, and particularly in metals that are critical for energy transition, these critical minerals. So just last month, roughly six months, seven months uh, after it was founded, they announced a $2.6 billion deal to acquire 10% in Brazil's base metals producer, Vale. Vale's the name of the company. Vale 
produces nickel and copper and plans to invest 25 to 30 billion in new projects across Brazil, Canada, and Indonesia over the next decade. So you can see Saudi Arabia has been moving on on several fronts, both the geological survey at home, investing abroad to get them access to these critical minerals. Um, but um, one other thing, sort of on the, on the way out, the close of this, um, I mentioned Saudi Arabia likes to not just be a customer, but an investor and have access to technology. They also tend to think in regard to their larger initiatives, sort of they think regionally. And you see this, you see this in their diplomacy. We've talked about that. You're seeing examples like the, the newly established carbon credit market intended to be a regional market. You see it even in things like football. We talked a couple episodes ago about their tie up with African football governing body, you know, trying to make it a regional exercise. They're looking at minerals the same way. And according to Vice Minister for Mining Affairs, Khalid Amodhafer, Saudi Arabia is planning to commit more than a trillion dollars to drive its green energy and industrial development projects. But in terms of investment, it won't just be on the Saudi part of your favorite word, Lucian, the Arabian shield but also a mineral-rich region that includes 79 countries and stretches from Africa to Western and Central Asia. And this is notable because this area holds 40 to 50% of the world's mineral resources, yet receives only 13% of global mining exploration spending. Saudi Arabia wants to be in the vanguard of, of developing these resources as well as the ones at home. So anyway, um, that's the latest on minerals and mining. I'm sure we missed some key things in there. Um, but... Uh, as I said at the beginning, it's just fascinating to watch this country and its leadership go from zero to 60 on key sectors in just a, a blink of an eye. They're really moving quickly on these things. Actually, my favorite word is not Arabian Shield, it's Hanagia, which yes. in this which is which is in the Arabian, it, 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 you know, it's it mining deposits in the Arabian Shield. It is. So it's a double plus. <laughs> it's a double plus. Hanagia and the Arabian Shield. Um, really cool. Very good one. I was thinking, as you were saying that too, one of the, 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 I think maybe the third prong of it, and you got to it at the end, is foreign direct investment into the Arabian Shield and some of these unexplored areas. Like that's another focus. And that was what Hanagia, you know, at, with that, um, the auction that was had and I guess Al Shan Brothers Mining Company won that along with um, it was a UK Saudi consortium, Moxico Resources and Al Jan. But that's the other part. That's the last piece of this. And you got to it at the end there. I was like, oh, but what about the foreign direct investment? Because they're they have they have abundant resources. And so what I think is so interesting is that they're not just saying, all right, well, we've got all this stuff in Saudi. It's kind of a big country geographically. There's a lot here. Let's focus here. Just like you said, and I think that's such a good point, and I, and I think it actually applies to a lot of different things too. They're investing in the underlying technology in the companies that are doing it here and there and there so that there's knowledge sharing and best practice sharing between these companies. There's partnerships formed that make it easy for new companies to be formed to explore in these areas and to set up new sort of um, interests all around the world. So their interest in mining is not just mining minerals at home. It's actually a very complex strategy that's being put into place, as you noted, Richard, I think very well, quite rapidly in the last 18 months, maybe max. So it's just incredible. And this is a good one big thing, because this is one of those sectors that really follows on to the don't just 
say that you're going to do it, actually do it and follow through with everything you're going to plan on doing. And it's another sector as well that touches a lot of different things, EV, batteries, which is massive all around the world now, uh, technologies. Uh, so very good one, Richard. I don't have a ton to add to it because it's just like the story it's, itself is like that they are moving fast and not breaking things, but they're full steam ahead with this. So it's really cool. I think that's a, that's a very good point, and it speaks to how they've gone about it. They tend to be pretty meth methodical because that foreign and direct investment uh, has been pumped up and made more attractive because they've significantly rewritten the regulatory regulations for investment, and they've they're offering significant incentives, tax holidays, uh, you know, uh, loans, you know, and, and and they've just did this earlier this year. They had their second uh, now annual sort of mining investment uh, forum, and so they, you know, they're, they're, you, you see the marquee investments like two point six billion in Vale or the marquee JVs with Ivanhoe Electric, or the Australian and other firms coming in and saying we're going to mine this like at, at Hunnigy or elsewhere. You know, prior to that, they were thinking it through. We these people aren't going to come unless we change our regulatory environment, and so they've done that. So it's more attractive. So, you know, they're just not crashing about, you know, heading off some direction willy-nilly. They've, they've, they have a plan and they're pursuing it. And again, notable, as we talked about, for the pace with which they're going after it. Yeah. That's, we, a, that's, that's a good point on FDI. Yeah, that's well. I was just going to say that was a really good point as well about, I mean, like, so th it what's interesting is it's the Ministry of Mineral and, uh, Mining and Industry Right, it's the Minister of um, Minerals and I got to get this right. Sorry, it's uh, Mineral Resources. Anyway, so it's industry and mineral resources are two very kind of you know intertwined, but they're separate things. And but right. they have one minister for that, and so the minister has sort of got this you know juggling two balls of of very different but like very fast growing challenges for Saudi Arabia. How quickly can they build 36,000 factories, which is the stated goal by 2030? And also we need to really turbocharge the mining and mineral sector in the kingdom. So he's a busy dude. You know how we have the list of busiest guys in Saudi Arabia and, and <laughs> we kind of just as a joke we sort of talk about it. it's got to be the crown prince at the top. Um, but you have some other guys in there that have like four different jobs and it's hard to imagine how they get to sleep. The minister is one of those guys. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all interesting too, because for the longest time, I mean, going way back decades, you know, there's petroleum, there, there's, there's crude oil, there's petroleum, there's energy, there's petrochemicals, you know, the third leg will be mining and minerals. It's interesting how the mining and mineral minerals is now critical to future legs like EV, um, and and I just blanked on the other one. But, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, foundational to if they want to build an EV market and what's essentially is going to be their autom automobile, automotive ecosystem. Um, and it's also essential. Sorry, the other one was things like uh, their nuclear. You know, they really want to be able to build a civil nuclear uh, capability. And they want to be able to mine and process their own uranium, which is on, you know, which they have found deposits of in Saudi Arabia. So you see how, you know, if they can get the mining and minerals right, it unleashes two, really at least two, I'm sure there's a billion that I'm not even aware of or thinking of, I'm not smart enough to know about, um, you know, two really important future directed uh, 
sectors, you know, EVs and nuclear power. Mm-hmm. So it's all of a sudden, that that third leg that they've been trying to get along now is becoming increasingly important. And and you have like going back to the the concept of the strategy. You had all the top ministers from the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources finally get it right. Uh, they visited Australia, I think it was either last oh. year or early this year, just as a team, because there's so many synergies between those two countries and how they do it. And there's so much to learn from um, Australia. And so they all went there and it was part of some forum, but it, it was quite the showing for Saudi Arabia at this forum. So it's it's. It's one of those things where we are watching it and 100 episodes in, year and a half plus that we've been doing this, and you just sort of notice it over time really maturing very quickly for Saudi Arabia, a country that traditionally doesn't change very quickly. I know change quickly now seems commonplace, but pre-2016, 2017, a theme from last episode is actually not that commonplace. And so it's it's amazing, really. And and it, it, it this is... we. We should get somebody from the ministry on the show at some point in the near future and, yeah. and give a really good update or even Madden because it's sort of a, a space that's clearly important to the kingdom. So, oh, yeah. And, and just so we can, you know, we can prep you guys. Um, the next, the third Future Minerals Forum will be held in, in Riyadh, uh, January 10, 11, 2024. So make your plans now. Look ahead. Good time to be in. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it is. Yeah, as you remember, remember, remember that one, Remember that. Remember that segment I did on a number of conferences in in Saudi in February. I think it was February this year, and I think what was it? Was it you know something like seven or eight million? And it wasn't that many. Point being is, you know, everybody wants to be in Saudi. You know, somewhere between January and February, or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, late in this in the winter and early early in the year because the weather's so pleasant. So you can see that there's a lot of things going on in terms of conventions and forums and exhibits in Saudi Arabia during the winter months. Yeah, it may be a proximity bias, but a lot of people I know in Saudi Arabia are not in Saudi Arabia right now, and it's <laughs> not a coincidence. It is enormously hot there, and that's okay because the winter is amazing in Riyadh. It's actually it's lovely because it's kind of a dry warmth in the winter. It just is awesome. So, and and they do get some rainy season at the beginning. So, I don't know how we got to weather. I'm sorry about that. But, um, <laughs> the Future Minerals Forum, yeah. January 10, 11, 2024. Be yep. there. Leave your winter jacket at home because it's <laughs> <Yeah>. nice. <laughs> um, my one big thing. It's a big thing for Saudi Arabia this week, and Saudi Arabia, of course, being the subject of this podcast, the 966, the country code of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been interested in joining the BRICS group for some time now since at least the year 2022. The BRICS group, of course, is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. We found out officially this week the feeling is mutual. Saudi Arabia is now among six nations invited to join the BRICS group. The nations invited, in addition to Saudi Arabia, are the UAE, Iran, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Argentina. And before I get into this, just like kind of set the stage on what the BRICS is and why this might matter for Saudi Arabia and like what it, this just happened. So we're going to kind of learn a lot more in the coming days. We may revisit it in episode 101. But one thing that we do need to, and again, this is silly, but we got to clean this up because the BRICS was such a great and really tidy acronym. And you've added six countries now. So I would like to coin the term BRICS plus six, which rhymes really well, but um, you know, implies that the other six are not full permanent equal members. And I think if all six joined, 
they will be full equal members. So I tried, I took all the starting letters of each of the additional countries and <laughs> you can get to, um, it's 11 countries now that are in the BRICS if they all accept, which they have not yet. So it's not like a done deal, but you can create one nine letter word and that is causeries. That's not going to be the acronym that they use. So you well, it does to, begin with China. So that's the key thing. That's key because China is by far the largest group yes. in the BRICS. So just a little bit about it. It started as an acronym BRIC and it was coined in 2001 by an economist, Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs. He was really just grouping together four of the largest and fastest growing economies at the time and how the group could sort of collectively become a global economic force in the coming decade just as you know on their own not if they congealed together and formed a group so before this the countries weren't really bound together by anything but i think the leaders in those countries said wait this o'neill dude he's kind of onto something we have something in common here and mainly that is that they have an urge to be sort of a counterweight to the us-led global political and economic financial systems economic and financial systems i should say and i, I say that because that that statement you could spend a whole segment on that and whether or not that's what it is or whatever but that's sort of it's just not the u.s led the u.s is not in BRICS, so maybe that's why but you know the reality is that the BRICS countries have a ton of differences geographic obviously cultural and religious there are various size now in terms of their economies and population and on that and you just mentioned it richard China accounts for more than 70% of the group's economy. India is 13%, Russia and Brazil are 7% each, and South Africa 3%. Those figures are from mid last year, so they're fairly accurate now, but you know these things can change by a little bit. If you look at these economies since 2001, Russia and Brazil have sort of failed to grow like China and India have. So they've basically stagnated and remain at the same size as they were in 2001 in terms of their share of global GDP. But eight years later, after this term was coined, the BRIC nations had their first hang sesh, their first meeting in Russia in the city of Ekaterinburg. Probably butchering that. Just I, I butcher everything, so it's um, at least equitable in that sense. A year later, they invited South Africa to join, so they added the S to the BRIC, making BRICS. So before these new entrants were added, you can kind of see what they have together if they really bound together. It's 27% of the world's geographic area, 42% of the global population, a quarter of the global GDP, 18% of global trade. And now they're adding six more countries, which is significant and is definitely news. The BRICS group is still new. Uh, it's had one major success, and that's the BRICS Bank, which has about $50 billion in subscribed capital so far has approved more than 30 billion in loans since its inception in 2015. That's really quite a small amount in comparison to the World Bank, which committed at more than 100 billion last year alone. So it's not a rival to the World Bank, but it's something. And so we have this expansion now. There are multiple reasons for the expansion. Russia sort of needs a global body in which it is not absolutely ostracized every time it shows up because of the invasion of Ukraine. China is a rival of the United States. It wants some more political clout, geopolitical clout. So it's sort of like these countries are saying, okay, this is something we should build on it. And they had a lot of interest. They had 22 other nations that wanted to join it. And Saudi Arabia was one of those nations. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud said the kingdom was awaiting details from the BRICS group on the nature of the membership and would take an appropriate decision accordingly. So that's, uh, we applied 
thank you for accepting us. We're going to talk about it and we'll make a decision. Speaking to the Saudi TV channel Al Arabia, the Saudi foreign minister added that the bloc had, quote, proven itself to be a useful and important channel to strengthen economic cooperation with countries of the so-called global south, end quote. He also said that the BRICS conference earlier Thursday, um, he said at the BRICS conference earlier Thursday, he, he flew to South Africa to, to attend this sort of BRICS plus event um, of nations sort of working with the BRICS and using the forum as a, as a channel to kind of network for high level officials. Um, but he said that the kingdom would continue to be a quote, secure and reliable energy provider, adding that total bilateral trade between Saudi Arabia and BRICS nations exceeded $160 billion in 2022. So again, right now, this is news. So what this really means, we're going to see some opinions coming out on that in the next few days. Um, I, I suspect we'll see a lot of people talking about this. But one thing I thought was interesting was uh, Jim O'Neill just a few days ago who coined the term he commented on the group's expansion to bloomberg last week and said quote economically not many of the countries that are applying to join are particularly large um he noted that existing BRIC members have quote had enough difficulty trying to get just trying to get to agree between the five of them so beyond the admittedly hugely powerful symbolism i'm not quite sure what having a lot more countries in there is going to achieve End quote. So if it's symbolic, what does it symbolize? Maybe this is the start of a more formidable counterweight to some of these other U.S. and Western-led global bodies and institutions. Again, it would just sort of be the start of that. And what is consistent about the BRICS admittance is that um, the nations admitted aren't all like one, one another either, just like the BRICS aren't. For Saudi Arabia and Iran to both be admitted at the same time, they were once the fiercest of rivals until this year. They still may be, but at least they're talking. That's interesting. You have Argentina being admitted now, and they're really in a bad economic spot. So maybe this is meant to sort of help the existing nations benefit from aligning with Argentina during a crisis. It's hard to say what's going on there. And all the BRICS nations had to approve of the new entrance. So not everyone got accepted. Ethiopia became the only low income country in the group. Its prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, described it as a great moment for his country. Totally can see that. So let's see what Saudi Arabia does with this, this, this decision, what the US reaction might be. We are at a very interesting time with global energy markets, global stability with Ukraine, US-Saudi relations warming up again. It's it's one of those things that's, it's, and again, this is just my one big thing. I don't know what's going on here. Um, I don't know the significance of this going forward. I think we're going to find out a little bit more. But man, things are changing so quickly. I just feel like 100th episode of this podcast and things happen so quickly. There's always stuff for us to talk about. It just seemed like this really stood out. I mean, there, you know, this, this or new organization, BRICS, as of 2009, is starting to gain a little bit of traction, but what it can do and, and you know, is it going to have one currency is sort of what people are, are suspecting. Maybe they'll have some sort of currency. Maybe this implies something about energy pricing in something other than the dollar. Who knows? But there's this is interesting. No, no forecast. What do you think about the future of the BRICS? And, uh, and go ahead. <laughs> Well, uh, so I was going to ask you that as, <laughs> because I don't know, because you're <laughs> but all I can really get to the bottom of, if I can just, just add this is that it's sort of an organization that's like a, it's like a club 
that doesn't have really, it definitely does not have a defense pact or anything like that. Or, you know, it's maybe this can become something right now. BRICS is pretty toothless. So maybe the addition of Saudi Arabia and some of these other nations means that they're going to start really making it a lot more impactful, more than just an annual get together. That's what I think. But I know that doesn't add much. <laughs> no, I don't know if I have much to add. I mean, the, the, that was that was good. And that was good background on Jim O'Neill. And I guess the, the term I think that may win the day is BRICS 11. BRICS 11. Yeah. Hmm. BRICS dash 11. That, you know, because it, 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 it does, it's not quite as wrapped up and nice, but Jim O'Neill, one of the things that you referenced it, I mean, as you said, I mean, at the time you had, you know, the original BRIC members, you had large economies, high potential growth rates. Um, except for India, when you look at the BRICS, all of them have underperformed their emerging market peers over the last five years. So, and then you mentioned, you know, so even the original BRICS, aside from India, are sputtering a bit. You can't say that China's sputtering, but in terms of their benchmarks of the previous decade, they're sputtering. Um, and the new entries, you know, if I'm Saudi Arabia, and you, and you just like you get accepted to a club, or like you know, like a like a, a D one major major D one college athletic sports program, you know, everybody has a recruiting class, and what you hope for that's really strong, but there's nobody better than you. All right, so in this group, there's nobody. I mean, Saudi Arabia in terms of GDP comes in and is is basically ranked fifth in terms of GDP. So it goes China, India, Russia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia. But I can't say that that recruiting class is strong. I mean, Argentina, UAE, Egypt, Iran, Ethiopia, you know, you know, and all of them basically have the, the half the GDP of Saudi Arabia or less. Ethiopia has a hundred billion dollar GDP. And obviously it just went through a you know, a, a civil war in essence. And Egypt has this problem. Iran has a problem. Argentina has this problem. The mystery is why doesn't India, why wasn't Indonesia included in this? You know, at 1.4 trillion, they would have been a, a major GDP, uh, uh, you know, addition. So I don't, India didn't want this. India is concerned that uh, the BRICS will become a mouthpiece for China. And if you're asking my take and you look at, you know, basically the most notable thing that the BRICS have done is that new development bank. They have $100 billion in, $33 billion have been dispersed. People, you know, countries like South Africa used a billion dollars during the COVID. So, I mean, it's been put to use. You know, there's been discussion about a common currency, but really none of them want it. Um, there's been discussion of de-dollarization, and right now you're not really seeing it. I mean, some foreign exchange in terms of, of countries, is U.S. dollars has declined, but in terms of commercial use, it hasn't, hasn't declined. And what's happened really, according to the reports I've seen, is some of these lesser currencies are sort of cannibalizing each other, not necessarily the dollar. And again, there's smarter people who know more about this than, than I do. But I just wonder if you've sort of taken this and and at China's behest, and you know China's trying to roll up much of the world through economic and other reasons in, in a political way, uh, that it becomes a just you know merely a political entity. And I think it diminishes its value if that's all it is. Um, you know, again, I'm I'm probably missing key things, and maybe they'll pump up the the lending 
capacity of that new development bank. Um, maybe the political, you know, expansion in terms of new members will help it. But, you know, if it just becomes a political mouthpiece is that, you know, that we're going to counter the U.S., um, I just, I don't, I'm, I'm not seeing the value in this. Saudi Arabia, of course, there's value because you now, you know, you're a member of the G20 already. And you're trying to take a, a, a multilateral approach and not pick sides. So this makes a great sense. But again, if I'm Saudi, I'm not super excited going in with Ethiopia and Iran. Um, again, Egypt has serious problems. Argentina has problems. I, I mean, so it's it's really interesting. It's a, it's a bit of a mystery. I don't know why Indonesia isn't in. And I'll be really interested to see how this works out and how the BRICS develops, if it continues to develop, or what kind of institution it becomes. You also have Saudi Arabia positioning itself recently, last year plus more, as right in the middle of everything. You're not taking too much of one side on anything. And as a result, you're seeing it play an outsized role in foreign policy, um, at least outside, outside of the region. So I agree with you. I don't know, like, like what's in it for them? You know, there's a little bit of risk of being seen as drifting too far to China and Russia. You have this platform which is being used. You, you mentioned China, but you sort of had Russia being using this platform to justify the war in Ukraine, the invasion in Ukraine. And it's just, and as you note, Richard, to have it be sort of admitted at the same time of these countries that are significantly smaller, like like how much more excited would you be if you're Saudi Arabia and you were the only one let in and it would be like bricks with two S's at the end and, and you're the other one. And it's like, well, now we're talking here. Now we have a group of heavy hitters, but you're, you've been let in with these other guys that are much smaller than you. And it's like, oh, so or I you, think that's you, a great point. Well, you come in with Indonesia and you're bricks C, but you know, there, there's another vibrant economy. Um, it's just, it's just curious. I, and I think again, from, from Saudi Arabia's point of view, certainly politically and where they want to position themselves in the world, great sense. I just wonder if the whole enterprise hasn't been, deva been devalued a little bit by this and, and uh, more easily sort of marginalized, you know, because, because essentially what is the, the, the combined GDP of, of, uh, you know, the BRICS enterprise, I think it's like 24 billion trillion. Yeah. Um, something to that. Uh, let me see. Go, but anyway, but like you said, 70% of that is China. So, you know, you can understand India's concern about it becoming a mouthpiece for China because China has global strategic and political, um, you know, goals to counter the U.S. at every turn possible. And, you know, some of these countries may agree with it, but they don't want to become hostage to it. It's like the phenomenon where if you have a small but very powerful club, you can get more done and have more meaningful discussions versus having a, a dinner table with 11 people at it and you can't really understand what other people are saying. Everyone's very different. There isn't a focused like like BRICS was cool because it was like these countries don't have a ton in common and they have actually very serious differences, but there's they're small. It's a small group of very outsized actors in their various spaces. So it's it was like a club and and it's kind of interesting that they didn't do more with it. 
I just don't know if adding this many members now makes it that much more important. I think if you're in the global north, I guess is how you would say it, right? The, the global north is the opposite of the global south. I, I've only learned of global south recently. So if you're in the global north, if you're in the west, you're, you're looking at this, raising your eyebrows saying, oh, interesting. Like, we're not in this club, but so what? I mean, what's happening next? I think if you're Saudi Arabia, you're looking at this and and it was interesting that they didn't just immediately accept, even though that they had applied to a join. They, they said, well, thanks, we'll, we're gonna take a look at it. And I, I'm yeah. sure they will, it's cool, I guess, but like, this is a win for China and Russia, in my opinion. But if you're and, India, I agree. I don't know. And, yeah. and that's sort of the part, you know, Russia couldn't even show up at the meeting in South Africa for, you know, Putin couldn't even show up at the meeting in South Africa for fear of being arrested. Because mm -hmm. um, South Africa is, you know, is signatory to, you know, some extradition and, and you know, international legal agreements. So I don't know. This is interesting. But is it going to be, I mean, if it's going to be a committee of 11, of such a disparate, different type of groups. I mean, nothing's ever going to be agreed on. Is it going to be like Lincoln's cabinet where you had discussion, but really the only one who made the decision was Lincoln. And then Lincoln in this term is proxy for China. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it is interesting. But, but I do think if it just becomes a political mouthpiece, it's, it's devalued somewhat. Agreed. Yep. Interesting. Richard, let's now get to our conversation with Nadia Makbul al -Audhia. Just... Salmani architecture is so cool and you made, made such a wonderful point in this and I'm going to spoil it a little bit Richard but you talked about how everyone wants to be an architect in some way <laughs> and when you said that I was like man that's so true and so and that kind of captures everyone's fascination um, with the spaces they're in there's the spaces they're looking at and the rise of this new type of design emerging from Saudi Arabia and we get to talk with somebody who knows so much about it. it's awesome so well and I, I, I think it was very sweet how she humored us she did humor us and our, <laughs> and and our questions, questions <laughs> and, our, and our childish enthusiasm <laughs> enjoy In episode 87 of the 966, we explored the concept and themes of Salmani architecture, the unique style of design originating in Saudi Arabia that is characterized by its connection to local heritage and a firm intention of concept and form. We are pleased to pick up where we left off by welcoming on to the 966, Nadia Makbul Alawatiya, a leading Riyadh-based architect and urban designer who is closely familiar with the Salmani architecture style. Nadia listened to the episode we did on Salmani architecture and was recommended to us by several listeners and ultimately introduced to us through other another previous guest on the program, Todd Albert Nims. Nadia, welcome on to the 966. Nice to see you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy and excited to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about, about your background? You're, you're Omani, and I love that, um, you know, as you describe yourself, uh, you know, uh, you know, passionate about the interplay between culture, memory, and sustainability. But you make a very specific reference that your 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 working language is in your tribal language, which is a Lawadi. And I guess the Lawadi merchant is is a very large, historically deep merchant family in Oman. Correct? Yes, yes. So the Lawadi family is. Um... Is a very unique family in Oman. Um, from an architectural perspective, from a spatial perspective, we live in a place called um, the Corniche, the Matrah Corniche in, in Muscat. And it is the only surviving, I believe, medieval Islamic um, settlement. It's a very traditional um, um, settlement. It's got four corners with four towers, and it has a, 
a boundary wall and the houses inside are very, very compact, very, very, um, actually very aligned to the principles of Salmani architecture that we can will most probably be talking about later about human centricity and connectivity and authenticity. And that's where I grew up, you know, as a child, my parents would go to work and they would drop me at my grandparents' house in this place. And I would, I remember very distinctly visiting all my grandmother's friends during the day. Um, as a student, I studied about um, domestic architecture um, between modernity and tradition. And I really focused on what we call space syntax, which is the relationship between the spaces more than the actual physical um, structures. And I remember experiences as a child, um, you know, they talk about these, these settlements, the traditional Islamic settlements during the day, men would leave completely and the entire settlement would become a female dominated space. So, you know, women will take off their abayas and their scarves and it was like the whole settlement is like a big house. And then when the, when the men would come back after work or at lunchtime, everyone would go into their little houses or their rooms and it becomes private and then the streets and the alleyways become public space. So the malleability between public and private always fascinated me as a child. And I think the Lawatia quarter or Harat Lawatia in Maqrah really, really taught me that. Fascinating. So it was, you were paying attention at a very early age at structures and space and design. Um, yeah, I mean, um, sorry, yeah, go ahead, uh, Richard. No, 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 go ahead, please. Well, I think um, I'm half Armani and I'm actually half Peruvian. So this whole concept of identity and how we express that identity, whether it be through fashion, um, art, craftsmanship and architecture and moving between spaces in architecture has always fascinated me because I've always been very aware of the differences, the differences in how people of different cultures and people of different religions um, and how religion and culture influence their movement through space. And another thing that I studied was um, the layering of space, you know, the privacy. So in the same way that women in Islam wear a hijab to create this defensible space around them to, to keep, you know, um, strangers at bay as one, one reason for it, Islamic architecture does the same thing. It has the same hijabs manifested in courtyards, in arcades, in um, entrances, and how you shift 90 degrees when you enter into a, a domestic realm, for example, and you have to shift 90 degrees as a mechanism for protecting the people of the house visually. So I think I was very sensitive to all of these things way before I studied architecture, way before I even realized that I had, I had an interest in architecture. And where did you study architecture? You're award-winning. I mean, we, we, you know, you've been recognized with any number of awards, but I, I wouldn't, where did you study? And, and I studied in the Glasgow School of Art, which is part of Glasgow University in Scotland. And it was a very, very special school because it's an art school. So the architecture school was neighbors with sculpturists, the, the School of Sculpture, the fine arts, uh, product design, jewelry design. And that was another fascinating thing. I mean, I was, I think, I think lots of students were fascinated by me because in those days I used to wear the hijab, I used to cover up. So everyone was really, really interested in this, you know, Arab girl who, who looked very different and who was very, very curious. And I think all artists are very, very curious. And you just, you ask questions without getting offended or, you know, it's, it's like a, a completely different space as an artist. Well, I'm, I'm anxious. I know, I'm, 
our listeners are too, to, to sort of get to talking about architecture in, 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 in Riyadh. But before we do that, you're a, you're a founding member of 23 Degrees North, which is an architectural consulting firm. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about that? What's the significance of 23 Degrees North? Okay. Uh, 23 Degrees North is the latitude of Muscat. You know, it's like on, on the Cancer um, latitudinal line on, on the earth. And the reason we chose that name is because we believe in architecture that celebrates everything that roots it. We believe that good design is rooted in place, in climate, in topography, in culture, in religion. So the the latitude, the, the geographic point is is kind of like a reference to all of these things. And good architecture is architecture that addresses all of these things together. So let's talk about your sort of original thought or concept. You mentioned it, moder- modernity and tradition. And yes. the, the, the piece that Lucian referenced that we did uh, was looking at Salmani architecture. It looked at the role King Salman played as the emir of Riyadh for over 40 years. And it looked at, uh, you know, that in fact, you know, Saudi Arabia has now established sort of a charter design that is, and has tried to put some description and definitions of what Salmani architecture is. And I won't, we won't go through that, but so, but it, it seems to me to be an effort to uh, authentically and organically uh, marry these elements of modernity and tradition. Yes. I mean, the, the amazingly exciting thing that is happening in, in Saudi Arabia at the moment is the these giga projects, the scale of projects. It's one of the reasons that I came here. It's it's the perfect playground for artists and architects. And you have these two types of projects. You have projects that are very, very modern that seem to be quite abstract and almost people would argue that completely do not belong to the traditional fabric of the country. And then you have these this other family of architecture that is deeply rooted in a recognizable way. And what I love about the Salmani Charter is that it is not a guideline, it is not a specification, it's not a standard, it is not even a code of architecture. These are these are all like you know technical words to describe guidance, to describe a, to describe a set of rules that you want um, a community of architects working in a certain climate or uh, geographical context. To be considerate of. Salmani architecture is more of a philosophy. And I really like that because it guides without any form of restriction. And it acknowledges this fluid plasticine-like of, of traditional architecture. And this is very unique to this region because, you know, in the Western world, traditional architecture is lives in the past. It's it's historical. It has no place in the present. Um, you know, like I, 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 I studied and I lived and I worked in the United Kingdom and there you have listed buildings. And if you're a homeowner and your building suddenly becomes a listed building, it's almost like a curse because you can't do anything with it. <laughs> and anything that you do with it, it costs you so much money. It's, it's very rigid. But in this part of the world, it's not like that at all. It's something to be proud of. And there's, there's this understanding and acknowledgement and almost expectation that old buildings need to be um, allowed to for designers and architects to breathe new life into it. And Salmani architecture totally allows that. And as, um, as I think we mentioned earlier, it's based on, on a set of core principles that are all, all fundamentally related to um, the human experience, how these buildings 
and the spaces between these buildings enhance the user, the visitor, the the person's experience when inside these buildings or walking around these buildings. Um, well, so let's talk just just again for the purpose of the conversation. Um, is it okay if I just list the what are seen yes. as the core principles and 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 that's so one is authenticity. Yeah. Uh, two is continuity so, and, and then and I'll let you and then three human centricity, four livability, five innovation, six sustainability. Um yeah. and so these are, you know what you're saying is it's 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 not a rigid requirement or it's not a regulatory scheme where you have to it's it's a it's a suggestion it's an encouragement it's a guideline in essence yes so the way when when Salmani architecture was presented to the world um i remember there was an exhibition attached to it and not only did they present these uh, core principles but they presented um exemplar projects that embody these principles, which I think is really important. And it's really important to note that these were exemplar projects, projects that embody, and this, these projects aren't the only way of embodying these principles. So for example, if we go to the first principle, um, authenticity, it's all about having a rigorous methodology, um, a thoughtfulness to, you can't, or I don't think Salmani architecture will just accept any architecture being labeled Salmani architecture without having a proper narrative and a proper story that is rooted to the past and to the present and to the future. And this, this one key principle relates to innovation, which is, I think, the, the last principle. And it also relates to um, human centricity, which is it's all about the thought process. So as a, create, as a creative or as an architect, the way I appreciate this core principle is that it's giving me, Nadia, the ability to come up with my own methodology, my own narrative. When I'm designing a building, I could look at the site, look at the climate, the topography, look at the regional architecture of where this site sits, and then create a narrative that blends all of these together and add in the modern use of the building. You know, I, I could be designing a hotel or I could be designing a cinema, which didn't exist traditionally, but this is a new use that I can weave all of these things together and on top of that, I can also add modern material and um, new technology that wasn't available when a traditional architecture, you know, in, in the traditional architecture. And as long as I can weave all of these things together and create a narrative, then I believe that that would be successful embodiment of Salmani architecture. Now, the one thing to note is that Salmani architecture was born in Riyadh. So it addresses Najdi architecture, which is the regional architecture of Riyadh. Now, I believe what the kingdom is trying to do now is take Salmani architecture and broaden it, take these philosophies, these ideas, these core principles, and apply them across the country. And Saudi Arabia is vast, not just in, in land mass, but also in its cultural diversity and its architectural diversity. I've spent two years here. I don't think I've seen it all, and I'm working almost everywhere. So um, it is so completely rich that this first core principle could birth so many methodologies, so many narratives that weave in so many different elements. And in the same way that you have different types of architects, like, you know, you have Santiago Calatrava, who's an architect who is famous for his very creative approach to engineering. And then you have very different architects like um, 
Renzo Piana, for example, who is very um, earthy and works with, with um, natural material, you will get the same thing happening amongst Saudi architects and architects working in Saudi Arabia, where they would use this methodology and they would take it where their interests and their passions lie in the design of architecture. And again, I say, I love the philosophy aspect of it and not the code and the specification aspect of it because it allows this the sense of ownership and creativity and, and freedom for the creative and the designer and the architect. So what is authentic? I mean, is it something you know when you see it or is it, is it, are there specific design themes? So for example, you know, you look at, I, you know, King Abdullah financial district or any number of other things. And I look at that. Yeah. Let's, let's look at the, um, you know, the Metro station there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it, very modernist, obviously, but for me, I see all these tiles. You know, it's it's just a it's a all tiles, and then yes. a lot of the buildings they're they're sort of they clad, and I and I termed it again. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I said it reminds me of Mushrabia. So many of the buildings have sort of a cladding to it, a design feature um, that for me evokes Mushrabia. But but again, so I guess back to the question: how how do you know what's authentic? So, so like I said, for me, authenticity is being true in a storyline, in a narrative where you have a very strong beginning, a strong middle and a strong end. The beginning being the, um, the, the drivers and then the end being the product. So the way I work is that I've developed this, what I call this four-step methodology where whenever I'm designing a building, I think of the design drivers that would have driven a certain style of regional traditional architecture. That's the first step. Usually these design drivers are climate, usually they're topography, usually they could also be uh, architecture, uh, sorry, uh, cultural traditional expression, um, traditional natural resources available in this place. And then the second step would be to really understand the architectural language or the cultural vocabulary of that region. So for example, in Riyadh, the Najdi architecture, you have very recognizable prominent features. For example, the Najdi triangle, the patterns that you see in the kaft and you also see in the DQ. You see these uh, castellated parapets. You see the turma, which is a little projection that comes out of the walls where traditionally it used to be a defensive mechanism where they used to pour hot oil down. It mm. used to be positioned right above the entrances and then they used to pour hot oil um, when, when they're um, at risk of being invaded. So these are a few examples of um, um, the recognizable prominent features that exist in Najdi architecture, for example, step two. Step three, then I would have this um, a scale of interpretation from very traditional to very, very abstract. And then I would, depending on the building program, the location, the client's own aspirations, I would agree and decide which, which level of interpretation on the spectrum I can work with. So CAST is quite a modern to abstract level of interpretation of Najdi architecture. DQ is more traditional. Mm -hmm. But even in DQ, like I love uh, Kindy Square in DQ, where you have uh, the, the square, and then on the one side you have the RCRC building, and then the other side you have all of the restaurants and the coffee shops. And when you stand in the middle of the square, you're faced with a very abstract modern interpretation of Najdi in the RCRC building. And then you have the very traditional interpretation of Najdi and they both talk to each other. They look completely different. The, te the texture of the buildings, the materiality, the scale, 
very, very different. But if you go back to the basic principles, which is the triangles, the need to protect against the very harsh direct sun, the need for shading, these things are common in both of these buildings, even though they express it in very, very different ways. And the reason I call step number two culture vocabulary is because, especially in the Arabic language, you, you have a set of words and you can say something in very, very classical Arabic. So for example, in English, the, the, the manifestation would be thou shall not touch. But then you can also move on to the very abstract, uh, modern way of communicating and say, don't touch that. Or, you know, like, don't touch that, do, 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 do the song. So, you know, you, you're saying the same thing, but you're using very different language and an architecture can do that. And then the last step, the fourth step is, um, is the application of the design brief or the development brief. And for me, that, 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 that formula is in itself a narrative. It's a methodology. It's my methodology. And I'm sure if you speak to any other architect, they would have their own methodology. But as long as you're able to present this methodology um, where it's, it's strong in all its parts, then I would say it's authentic. Now, the outcome, the product, the piece of architecture at the end, when I'm making my presentation, I show you the big you know, million-dollar render, the money shot, you may hate it. Not everyone's going to like it, but it's okay because as long as the person who's paying for it likes it and he's <laughs> the person that I've been developing this design with, he likes it, then it's fine. And um, in architecture, and I think all arts, we always say that loving something and hating something is, is, is almost the same. You never want to get a neutral reaction. So you're never going to please everyone, especially in the realm of re reinterpreting and uh, reinventing traditional architecture, because it, it is quite a, a sensitive topic sometimes. And your uh, reference to the RCRC leads me to the next question. So for our, our listeners, the uh, RCRC is the Royal Commission for Riyadh City, which is uh, a, a major driver behind the development of Riyadh is it it, it 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 wants to expand eventually to 10, 12 million people, I mean, even more. It wants to be it wants to win the bid for the for the World Expo twenty thirty. So it's at the heart of a lot of what's going on. But you know, you refer to being in Riyadh at this point in Saudi Arabia at this point as being in a in a in a play box or a playground. Who is commissioning this this work? Are, are, is it primarily government entities, PIF, other entities, or is it private sector uh, entities as well? All of the above. All of the above. I think recently um, um, there there has been um, there has been direction from I think all the way up from His Royal Highness the Crown Prince that all architecture needs to be respectful to the regional architecture of where this architecture is going to be sitting. So all new proposed architecture needs to pay some kind of homage to, um, to the regional architecture. And I would even go as far as saying that even the projects that we believe have no, no connection to, to re regional traditional architecture as we know it, they do have a, a connection. Projects like the line, projects like Al Murabba, the new Murabba, these projects are, for example, rooted in geometry. And geometry has always been, well, geometry and mathematics mm -hmm. has always been a key component of expression of the divine in Islam. You know, in, in Islamic art, you rarely, you rarely see um, paintings of people, of animals. Um, you have 
a little bit of landscape, but predominantly whenever an artist wants to describe the divine, divine creation, it's always in the medium of geometry and mathematics. And I've not studied um, Neom and um, Al-Murabba carefully, but my initial impression has always been that these are um, paying a huge tribute to this legacy of Islamic architecture, Arabic architecture. You made a, a really interesting point. I think it, it, it's important going forward that, you know, the, the architecture in Taif will be different from Jeddah, will be different from Eastern Province, will be different from Riyadh. And, and, and you know, that's important and that's critical. In, in, and you may have projects and work that's been done in all those regions, but if we're looking at Riyadh, uh, and you can pick one of your own if you want. Can you tell us a specific or one or two or three project or building that you really like and why? <laughs> you may like a lot of them, so I thought that might be a stumper. <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay. So um, it's always really difficult asking an architect to describe their favorite building, <laughs> or, um, or but, why, or why they like it, why it speaks, why it speaks to you. Okay. Well, I really like DQ, and I also really like Kaft. I work in Kaft, and one of the reasons I really like Kaft is because. I feel like, I mean, you know, Kaft has been there for a really long time. I can't remember the year exactly that it was commissioned, I think, but it's been oh, a construction I think, site. I think 08. I'm just yeah, guessing, so but I think it's there. 2008. Yeah. Under Prince Abdullah, so King Abdullah. Yes. So I, it's been around for a really long time and it, it, it has aged quite nicely. I mean, the, the buildings and the public realm, the, the spaces between the buildings are really beautiful. It's lovely to have lunch there, lovelier to have lunch there in the winter than in the summer, but it's still lovely to, to be there, to work there. The buildings all express different levels of interpretation of Nejdi architecture. Walking through those buildings, I can see the clues of where the designers and the architects were inspired and, and what what prominent features they played with and they interpreted and they stretched to the boundaries. I also really like the use of materiality. You mentioned cladding. Cladding is a very modern material and it's shiny and it's appropriate for a financial district. It's appropriate for the scale of those buildings. The other really difficult thing when interpreting traditional architecture is when you're working with scale. Traditional architecture has always been maximum two, three, four stories. And mm -hmm. modern architecture, architecture in Kaft, you know, we're talking about high rise buildings. So to be able to take architectural features that worked on a building that is only three stories high and apply them to a building that is 30 stories high is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing for an architect to do. And then it's also not an easy thing for a pedestrian walking between these buildings to appreciate that this is actually inspired and driven by something Nejdi, you know, to, to connect the dots, it's not very easy. So, um, yeah, does that answer your question? Well, it does. And it's really fascinating because the diplomatic quarter and CAFTA are so different, but you can see all the sort of visual emotional touchstones that they each hit. I mean, you, when you're in the DQ in the diplomatic quarter, it feels like you're out 
you know, it's landscaped, it's green, it's, you know, the, 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 the color palette is very deserty. Um, and you know, it, it, you know, it's immediately recognizable that the KAFD and Lucian, you can talk to this. You spent a lot of time there, you know, for me, it, it was, as I said, it was the cladding and the, the tiles, the triangles, you know, and, and your mind, and I guess that's the beauty of it. Your mind isn't aware of what you're, you're, it's doing, but it's it's looking at things and it's recognizing patterns. And that's the geom- yes. geometry that you're talking about. Yes, and that's where the one of the Salmani principles is also continuity. And this is what this is what I believe they mean by the continuity is that you walk through and your mind starts to make connections, starts to make stories, and relates. And it doesn't just relate to things that are familiar in that context. You start thinking about, you know, architecture that you experienced in Greece or in England or, you know, anywhere. Because fundamentally, a lot of these architectures, they have the same similar similar drivers and they're both addressing similar things, but they address them in different ways. And the different ways that they address them is to do with the natural resources available in that place. So the, the raw material that they have and the crafts and skillsmanship that they have available. So, uh, Lucian, do you have a favorite building in Riyadh? I was trying to think about it. I think Via Riyadh is probably the coolest, most modern like iteration of it. But I'm also looking at the new sports boulevard that's coming online, and I don't know when that's going to happen. But um, so we, so yeah. yeah, Nadia gets to critique the Via Riyadh. Yes, in, ter- in terms <laughs> yeah. of Salmani architecture, which Villarreal, you know, has, has put itself forward as sort of a, a, a prime example of Salmani architecture and marketed yes. as such. Yeah. yeah, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I remember arriving at Villarreal and I hadn't seen any photographs or videos of it. It was like a real, raw, authentic experience. I remember walking through, you know, the Dolce & Gabbana entrance, which is quite tight. And then it opens out into this magnificent courtyard. And of course, classical music was playing. They were playing Bridgerton. And so like, I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. <laughs> and then I like, you know, put on my architecture and I'm like, not to get serious. Like, they're going to ask you about this building. And I just thought it was so thoughtful, so beautiful. That courtyard was so lovely. And this whole... Um, the layering of space that unfolds and opens up. So, you know, you walk through the very tight entrance and then you arrive at this courtyard. And then I remember walking around the courtyard and discovering that there was a sunken courtyard underneath that. And these are all very, very traditional ways of dealing with climate, humanizing climate. So you can imagine in the summer, everyone visiting Villarreal will be in that underground courtyard because it's protected, it's shaded, and uh, it's in shadow. And then, so that that left a lasting impression. Of course, the acoustics and the music and Bridgerton also left a lasting impression. <laughs> um, and then you had the the massing, the massing of the building, and it has these beautiful um, carved windows that you know. I remember walking into one of these windows and just looking around, making sure nobody can hear or see me. And then you know, just singing, and the acoustics, you know, the music just goes up. So this is so beautiful. I don't think Salmani architecture, traditional architecture was very musical, but I think that's just a lovely modern side effect to it. But that was <laughs> well, really you, nice. And, and, and the deep groves were there to protect the windows. So the windows were set back right. and the, the, the walls just gave this depth. 
to protect the windows and ultimately filter the light coming in. So the reason that they were able to have these large windows, which were appropriate because of the function, which is retail and FMB, was the compromise that they had to have these really thick walls and these niches. So there's, it's, there's always this negotiation, this give and take. Um, yeah, sorry, you wanted to say something? That's a good one. No, I mean, I, I, my, I think mine's more prosaic, although, I, like I said, I, I, like, I really like the DQ and KFD. I've always loved the King Faisal Library, and I think that's in part, oh, yeah. it was built in 85, and every time Lucian and I go by, especially in the evening, I'm going, I just love that, especially at night when all the families are out, kids are running around, it's a green area, but the whole facade, I, I think, is well done, and and. I'm a little embarrassed, but I mean, the, the the building that somehow spoke to me when I was there last was the Al-Raji Bank building. And I don't know why. It just seemed to me, it, you know, it's extremely traditional. It's just, a, uh, it's just a, you know, a rectangle. It's a tall rectangle, but just the way they use the stone and the way they use the glass and it's not straight up. It's a little, it's, I thought it was very subtle. And again, another thing that looks, looks nice at night, um, but also it's not particularly you know, in terms of architecture in Saudi, in, in Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, it, some of it is really, really creative and forward thinking and out there. It's a very traditional piece. I've not, I, I remember Googling a Rajhi uh, bank because many people have said that it was their favorite building. And I, I, an image of it doesn't come to my mind um, immediately. But, um, oh, but yeah, many people be, share. Yeah, it can't be great then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's just I, I look at so many buildings um, every day. Well, it's um, like but, you were saying uh, earlier, the you library. have a strong reaction one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this didn't, this didn't make the thing. So, oh, no. Uh, well. uh, but the library, the library is a very, very special building. And it's not just, I mean, obviously the skin is, is really special. It's also very special because of the story. I think within its core, it houses the original building and then they've, they've expanded and they built the skin around it. So that's a beautiful narrative within itself. And then, of course, the public realm surrounding that the building where it's so receptive to everyone in the community, not just the intellectuals who want to use the library. So that satisfies a lot of Salmani architecture core principles. Your, your use of the term narrative, I mean, I think is really on, on target. And is this something, is this something you've seen before or encountered where it's essentially public policy that architecture needs to have a narrative it needs to be authentic uh, you know in other words you know in the US there's no guiding there's no suggestion you know you do what you want to do and it's sort of always been that way um, but it seems this is a as with so many things in Saudi Arabia that it's it's top down but it's also thoughtful trying to encompass a lot of things as as we as we determine our narrative as Saudis um, I just think it's fascinating it does seem to be in the architectural field as well yeah, I mean, um, I think I, I talked a little bit, I think, in the beginning about how how Saudi Arabia is so exciting because it's it's this amazing playground where there's so much happening and so much modern building happening at a scale that has never been done before at a, at a city at city scales as well, and unlike anywhere else in the world, I think the Middle East in general and Saudi Arabia in particular, because of this mass building and mass design that's happening, the 
like people like me and people like my parents, they are so intimately connected to traditional architecture and their past. And, you know, people like my parents, that generation are the decision makers, you know, so I'm pitching something, I'm pitching a project, I'm pitching an idea. I'm pitching it to somebody who lived in the traditional architecture that I'm, that I'm either trying to relate to. And if I'm not trying to, to relate to it, then it's, I, I believe it's a, it's a huge lost opportunity because because they're the decision maker and the, everyone has references, right? So the, the story is in the continuity. And because we've experienced such vast development within our own lifetime or the lifetime of our parents, the continuity of this narrative is very, very tangible. In other places, in, in Europe and the US, perhaps it's less tangible because traditional architecture is so old, you know, buildings there, like for example, in England, um, Victorian townhouses, they were built like, you know, they're, they're completely out of my generation, my parents, my parents' parents' generation. But here is very different. Here, traditional architecture, we know people who've lived in, in, in these buildings and mm -hmm. they are, and they are very intimately aware of the experience of living in a building that has no air conditioning, but is yet cool and comfortable in the summer. And these things have a nostalgic power. They have an emotional power. So not only are stories and narratives important because they evoke the emotions, but when you relate them to nostalgia, to history, to memories, then your narrative and your story becomes that much more powerful. And I guess it's a selling tool. <laughs> I just can't emphasize that enough. That's a really interesting take on the the recent nature and how immediate it is in terms of the collective memory. Because when I was in Alula earlier this year, same thing, but it, it, I've experienced it all over in many places in Saudi Arabia, and where you you go through an old development. I mean, we're talking mud and straw, you know, narrow alleyways, winding, you know, wood beams, if you found wood, but, you know, you know, very 14th century. I mean, same kind of style if you wanted to, but people were living here happily up to the 70s i mean you know they you know this is this is something they were living in, and then they they moved on you know there was housing that was built or whatever but i mean the recency i think is that's a really great point you make the recency is so much more compelling and real than in many other places yeah and the 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 pride the attachment to that sense of identity, which is always going to be the most authentic, um, authentic expression of our dwelling space that we inhabit. You know, no matter how how um, beautifully designed modern buildings are, they're never going to have the same nostalgic power as as traditional architecture is. So, the more that you can create this narrative, this connection, the stronger the the traditional buildings can be. Sorry, the stronger the modern buildings can be. Yeah, it's fascinating. Is so is Salmani architecture, is it being exported? Like imitation is the highest form of flattery. So are other areas around the region copying parts of it? Is it sort of spreading out? Is it taking off at all outside of Saudi borders? Is it or is it a little early? I mean the, the principles. So so Salmani architecture, if you look at it as 
a philosophy, a way of thinking, a way of taking traditional architecture and giving it a place in today's world. That's what Salmani architecture does. And to my knowledge, Salmani, the Salmani Charter is the most articulate, most thoughtful way of expressing this desire and this process or the seed of a process. But in Oman, when I was practicing in Oman, we used to do that. You know, I, I still had this the same methodology that I explained earlier. It's just that this methodology fits in really well with Salmani architecture. Architects that work in, in the continuity between present and past, they're doing it. They're doing what Salmani uh, charter guides and preaches. Now the output, the exemplar project of Salmani architecture when Salmani, when the Salmani Charter was presented, those embody and they give good examples because the other thing that was, um, that I, I believe when the Charter was launched to the public, they really didn't quite understand what do you mean? How can a philosophy give birth to an architectural style? So you needed these exemplar projects and these exemplar projects are in real, so therefore they embody Salmani Charter, using the Najdi architecture as a starting point. Now, what's going to happen in the country, I believe, is that over the next couple of months, we're going to see the Salmani Charter being used across the country. So we're going to see Salmani, and it's probably not going to be called Salmani architectures. I don't know what it's going to be called, but it's going to be called like Ta'if architecture that is aligned with the Salmani architecture charter. And, you know, you will have uh, architecture in Ta'if that is closely related to the architectural um, prominent traditional features that is one with landscape and topography and climate and all of these things. Now in the region, outside of the kingdom, places like the Middle East and even Mina and maybe even South America, you have people that have this continuity. I remember in in Peru there this this what we what what I described is still very strong the continuity between the past and the the modern architecture and modern architects are are designing buildings like Villarreal and making these kind of references and they are being received really well in 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 Europe and the US I am not sure if they are going to start appreciating their traditional architecture in the same way that we appreciate our traditional architecture. It would be really lovely for the Salmani architecture, and I know that it's been presented at, um, I think, some international architecture events. I think the the architecture festival, the architecture urban festival um, last year. So it would be really nice to see, um, to see the Salmani charter awaken a curiosity in young architects in Europe and you know, the Western world to start exploring and be curious about their traditional architecture and bring it into the modern age in the same way that Saudi architects and architects of the region are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in the Southwest United States where you have the exact same climate challenges as in Saudi Arabia where it's warm, yeah. it doesn't rain as much and you need to be cool. Um, it's fascinating. And, and, yeah. and Richard and I are both in the Washington DC area. It's so funny because they when Washington DC was built from the ground up with nothing here, they just copied ancient Greece and all the buildings are Greek marble buildings. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a theme for that and a reason for that, but uh, 
you know, <laughs> it looks like Greece if you go to Constitution Avenue. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. So it is. It's and it's it, it seems you know of those tenants, those sort of principles of so many architecture, you know that we talked about early, I, I feel like the one you gravitate to is continuity. And I say that because most architects are going to think about livability and innovation and, and human centric. Um, and I guess that's the nature of, you know, of exporting, say, Salmani architecture, because continuity in, in, in South America would be different. But the issue is that you want it to have continuity and you just say reflected, a, a, a identifiable, uh, narrative that is, you know, authentic to the society. So, I mean, I, I, I just think it's fascinating. And, and this is, this has been a great conversation. It's very instructive for me. Um, and I, I'm a little bit envious, Nadia, because like you say, I mean, you're right in the middle of a great experiment and uh, with so many opportunities to sort of imprint your, your vision and your, your eye and your style and that sort of thing. It's it's been amazing. It's been such an amazing experience being in in, in Riyadh, being in the kingdom at this time. After COVID, after the pandemic, I think the pandemic and the lockdown just reframed everyone's narratives regarding urban space, spaces between buildings, and how important that is. Because you know we were locked up in our apartments for so long, and the importance of being able to access um, nature within our urban spaces. So I just feel like Saudi Arabia is so well positioned to be doing this work and it has huge potential to gift the world a lot of urban design and architectural innovation, learning from the lessons that we gained quite hardly, um, in a difficult way, like difficult lessons learned during the pandemic and the lockdown. And, you know, this this level of development and design and architectural or urban hasn't happened in the Western world for, for hundreds of years, not at this scale. You know, they they do what I like to call surgical urban design, where, you know, they, they, they intervene interventions here and there in existing cities. But to design whole cities, uh, urban districts from scratch, it's it's fascinating. We a recent segment was it two episodes ago or last episode? It was uh, on zero gravity urbanism. You know what's trying to being tried and attempted it with the, just the line, um, yes. and, and just speaking to your, you know your your reference to trying to rethink the whole urban experience, um, and that's a big swing. Uh, that, that's an enormous, you know, it's a whole new school of thought and, and, you know, applied on a huge scale. So it would be fascinating if that succeeds. But, you know, th again, in keeping with so many architecture, there's a lot of thought being put into what's being built, why it's being built. Yeah, I mean, we all know, we've all been developing cities in the same way for hundreds of years. You know, there's a nucleus, there's a center, and then you expand from that center. And that center is usually the home of a major natural resource. And we know the cost of what these cities are. And we've experienced the cost of what they are during the pandemic. So if we need to, if we have to change things, if if we have to radically reduce our carbon footprint and radically reduce our consumption as an urban society, we need to be open to the possibility of designing cities in a completely radical new way. And I have a lot of respect for Saudi Arabia and the decision makers behind places like Neom and Murabba because 
they have the courage to to experiment and to do something different and they have the courage to fail the amazing and brilliant Nadia Makbul Alawatiya, a leading <laughs> architect based in uh, Riyadh and urban designer. An ama amazing privilege to speak with you, Nadia. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for being so curious and open to my, to my thoughts. That was our conversation with Nadia Makbul Alawatiya. We appreciate her time very much and we appreciated her insights. That was so cool and just a great conversation. And it was so flattering because she was excited to be on the show. That's we're, we're easily flattered. You'd show excitement to be here and we're like, we're all in. It was so cool. I mean, in the run up to it, hearing that she had heard the conversation on Salmani architecture, which was one your one big thing uh, a few months ago, maybe yeah. even less than that. They, you know, time flies when yeah, you're co-host of the Nice Six Six. So I'm I not really sure when that was, but I can't um, name an episode. I can't. I can <laughs> barely remember what I, what, what's been said. <laughs> <laughs> but that was super cool. So thanks uh, to her for her time, and we hope she comes back um, as the development pace in Riyadh and across Saudi Arabia is so fast that there'll be new material to, to ask her about in no time. So really cool. Absolutely. She'll be a natural, but I definitely, I think we can count on having Nadia back. I, I hope so. Now let's get to Saudi Yola in a minute. Episode 100. Yes, yes, yes. Episode 100. Triple digits. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one. We're so weird. Thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Our sincere apologies. Um, so number one, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have brought thousands, bought thousands of NVIDIA GPUs as they develop generative AI applications. The Financial Times reports that the Saudi government, through King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST, has acquired at least 3,000 NVIDIA H100 chips each worth around $40,000. They are expected to be delivered by the end of the year. Taust already owns at least 200 NVIDIA A100s and is building the Shaheen 3 supercomputer featuring 700 Grace Hoppers for the end of the year. This is, there's a lot to say about this. First of all, congratulations to anyone who bought NVIDIA stock on Holy January smokes. 1st of this year. Because it is absolutely in fuego. It is up 238.85% from 143. Yeah, year to date from 143 <laughs> bucks at the start is now over $485. So if you didn't have a time machine now, then yeah. uh, sorry. But um, very cool. And and yeah, I mean, Kaust is getting a, a it's already the, sort of the premier university in Saudi Arabia in terms of international reputation for that, that the highest level out of the wall. They just got, uh, it was just announced that the crown prince is setting up a new fund for Kaust and is re-energizing the university. We were going to add it to the yellow section here. And I think what we're going to do is maybe do a one big thing on it or something in coming weeks, it, just because it's such a huge story. But this is an awesome story. I looked up the Grace Hoppers which is super yeah. cool. I think it was named after Grace Hopper, mm -hmm. who was a computer science and a um, mathematician, pioneered computer programming, um, died in the early 90s in Arlington, 
which is cool. Not cool, but I mean, that's, she's, she was local, which is interesting, but yeah. yeah so this is, I mean, this is a big story. It's big for Saudi Arabia. It shows their intention on investing in AI and in sort of advanced supercomputing that can potentially have its power unleashed as AI really hits its stride in the coming months and years. Yeah, that's agreed. Now, in keeping with the AI theme, uh, the Shaheen 3 supercomputer was mentioned in the, in the lead in that yellow from BARD you know, our preferred generative AI source. Mm -hmm. This is what it says about the King Abdullah, the King of, so, so I'll just read it. The King Abdullah University of Science and Technology Kaust in Saudi Arabia is building a supercomputer called Shaheen 3. The supercomputer is expected to be the most powerful in the Middle East. It will be based on HPE, that's Hewlett Packard, HPE's Cray EX architecture. So the beauty of this is those are American companies that are involved in this critical, you know, element of, of Saudi Arabia's efforts to build the supercomputer. Um, so it's built. It's based on the HPE's Cray EX architecture. Uh, Shaheen Three will be a twenty-five cabinet HPE Cray X four thousand systems. This means something to some of our listeners. With more than twenty-eight hundred NVIDIA Grace Hopper GPUs, it is expected to deliver one hundred petaflops and provide a 20 times peak potential boost. It's slated to be fully operational next year. Somebody knows what I'm saying, but not me. I think um, I know what you're saying. I think um, if that computer is like my computer, it gets really hot <laughs> when it's thinking very hard. Um, so hopefully they have a massive fan because sometimes my computer just sounds like it's it turned into a huge fan. So, so um, it... And it, it is interesting. The race is on for these supercomputer uh, chips. And I guess the, the, this recent class of generative AI models, and I expect this to only keep going up, requires a 10 to 100-fold increase in computing power to train models over the previous generation. So, I mean, it's like so many things. You just It's a power, you know, it's a power grab. You got to get this. So, it, you know, and we talked about in, in uh, the one big thing about Saudi Arabia, when they decide to go in a direction, they go hard. Mm-hmm. So they're out there competing for this limited supply of uh, NVIDIA H100 chips. Go sure. America. Sure. And, you know, they're also bringing in the PhDs and the yeah. PhD classes to operate this machinery because I'm sure if I had a NVIDIA GH200 Grace Hopper super chip <laughs> in my room, I would put my cup of coffee on it or roll some putts into it. I don't know how to, I wouldn't know how to use it or what to do with it. And so, the yeah, that's could sort of, run all over the keyboard. That's <laughs> So that, that sort of highlights, I mean, Kaust has just got a really great reputation. It's a fairly new university, but I mean, the number of patents, I, I think I saw recently that they received last year, I think was their highest. Sorry if that is inaccurate. I'll correct that if I'm going to look into that after the show. And if that's not correct, then I'll <laughs> well, correct that in the thing. But uh, I said it and now it's there. So well, I, yeah, um, you're, you're on your own. I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think you said that. And <laughs> <laughs> yellow number two, SRMG Ventures, the VC arm of Riyadh-based conglomerate Saudi Research and Media Group has announced a small but significant $5 million investment in Angami, which is the Arab world's rival to Spotify. Angami, which was founded in 2012 in Beirut last February, became the first tech company in the MENA region to be listed on New York's NASDAQ exchange. Since its launch, Angami, 
Ngami, excuse me, has expanded its portfolio beyond music streaming. It now provides in-house productions, branded music and video content, concerts and live events, as well as a record record label for Arab artists and podcasts. Ooh, podcasts, Richard. Maybe there's some something for us, you know? We'll see. Yeah. Um I don't have much to add here. I mean, Angami is kind of it's kind of cool. It's the first legal music streaming platform in the Arab world. Um, I think you know, so clearly, and and it seems to have mostly Arab, you know, an Arab audience. Um, I guess the name Angami translates to my tunes in Arabic. Mm-hmm. So um, interesting. That interesting. is cool. Yeah, it yeah. has seventy million users. Spotify has 517 million, you know, that was neither here nor there, but it's, uh, it'll be interesting if I got me and like so many things, you know, obviously we, we did a, we did a one big thing, not, no, we did a yellow on the, or man, no, you did it on Barbie. Your mm-hmm. one big thing on Barbie, which is a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's now available on YouTube on our channel. Uh, that was a good one that Lucian did. And we talked about the, um, the cinema, you know, space. And we also talked about how, you know, Arab films are really, kicking butt and getting finding an audience there and that by by films that are in arabic by arab you know creators uh and maybe you see this sort of thing in in something with angami too as well spotify is the easiest money that i spend each month it's so worth it and it's do you remember the old system of buying cds and downloading it it's just such a game changer i love it i listen to music on it all the time um, just rules. Yeah. So uh, cool company I, I, and, and know, cool. Yeah. That, yeah, it's almost like this is almost like a would be an interesting acquisition for Spotify because they probably don't have the penetration in the region that Ngambi has. And, you know, maybe it's like an Uber cream thing. I don't know. You heard it here first on the 966, <laughs> but uh, just interesting. Number three, Axiom Space has raised $350 million in a funding round led by Saudi Arabia's Al Jazeera Capital and a Korean healthcare firm, Boryong. As a startup works with NASA to develop a private space station, Axiom said the round took its total raise so far to $505 million and made it the space startup to receive the second most funding in 2023, only behind Elon Musk's SpaceX. Axiom, which also has a $1.26 billion contract with the U.S. space agency NASA to develop spacesuits for use on the moon and other space programs, expects, expects the first module of its private space station to launch by 2026. Saudi investment in U.S. startups is truly accelerating now. This company, Axiom Axiom Space, which I didn't know much about, it's a Houston company, and this space station looks awesome, and construction is already underway. Axiom Space is the only company with, quote, the privilege of connecting its modules to the International Space Station. Of course, Saudi Arabia is investing in space elsewhere. It just flew an important mission alongside U.S. astronauts earlier this year. So cool story. Um, Don't have much to add outside of that, but I love it. Uh, You know, and in keeping with what we were talking about uh, with regard to minerals and mining, but in general, you know, they're investing in cutting edge technologies. And I agree with you. Remember, we did we talked we did a yellow on Ali Al Karni and Rayana Barnawi, who were the two two audit, uh, mission specialists and went on the Axiom flight in May this year. And um, and what Axiom's trying to do, I mean, build a private space station. Wow. 
to launch by 2026. I mean, this is sci-fi stuff and uh, it's a private firm and now Saudi Arabia is an investor, or at least Al Jazeera. Do you know Al Jazeera Capital? Yes. Where, yeah. what's their, what's their pedigree? What's their background? I don't know, but they, they do like, they, they don't, they like do specific investments like this. So they're sort of a, you know, diversified fund. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a strategic, you know, positioning investment. That's pretty cool. in in the, you know, aerospace sector. It is of course not affiliated with, uh, Al Jazeera news channel, which is, you know, right. not even, not even Saudi, but, um, <laughs> just worth, worth noting. Yellow number four, a falcon from a Saudi breeding facility has become the most expensive in the Middle East, fetching a record, fetching a record, I like that, of $134,000 at auction. The Cherug Fountain, known as the Hur, H-U-R, was one of several to attract serious bidding at the third international falcon breeders auction on Friday. The auction at the headquarters of the Saudi Falcons Club north of Riyadh has attracted participation from leading international falcon breeding farms. The auction has become a key marketplace for both local and international falcon breeding farms and offers business opportunities to professional falconers by showcasing a selection of elite breeds. Um, we included this just because it's cool. But also because it's it's in keeping with Saudi Arabia's sort of a promotion of authentic and and you know traditional aspects of its uh, society, and I guess um, I guess this this churug, it's also called a saker or soccer saker s a k e r falcon. It's apparently pretty large. It's like a second largest falcon species in the world, and. Um, so anyway, that's pretty cool. And but but like with camels and coffee and dates, um, you know, Saudi Arabia has been convening and building markets for all of these things. Uh, you know, not only to to celebrate the sort of cultural aspect of it, but to monetize it. Sorry, had it on mute there for a second. I was just looking up falcons versus hawks. I don't know much about it, but what do you do with a falcon? You just like chill with it, right? And no, you you hunt with them. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, they a lot of people hunt with them. Okay, is that a thing in the U.S.? I mean, that's I, I've seen that in Arabia, but like, there's absolutely an ecosystem and a and a community for for falcon hunting in the U.S. and globally. And you know, it's bigger in the Middle East and other other areas. But um, yeah, there's definitely you know falcon hunters in the U.S. The, these look like some mean birds. <laughs> I would not want to be on the wrong side of, of uh, an exchange no. with one of these things. Uh, uh, and, you know, they, it's, it's also interesting, too. I mean, the, there's a long history of illegal trading and, you know, endangered species. And falcons have been in one of this. This isn't what's happening in Saudi right now. Um, and maybe that's one of the things they're trying to do. I mean, they're trying to... to regularize all this and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, there's a tremendous interest in falconry and a very deep community, bigger in the Middle East than it is here. Initial Google search, you you can have a pet falcon, but I think you need a permit in the US to do that, to have a peregrine fa falcon or any other falcon as a pet. This is, we're going to, okay, sorry. We, I kind of want to get into this. Um, I think I need a new hobby and I think it should be falconry. Well, maybe a third I mean, co-host on the I, show. I think, I think, you know, with cats and young kids, 
A falcon makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a good call here at Hawkswood. If you see Coco (laughs) flying off across that field Ah! behind your house (laughs) with your pet falcon, let's just hope it's trained enough to come back. I I think that I I told you this, but when we first moved to this house, we didn't know what type of wildlife would be around. It's a large property, so and it's very wooded, and it's interesting because there's a lot of wildlife around here. So I was really nervous about my three cats getting absolutely destroyed by a falcon or a hawk or like a coyote. Like, I don't even know. But yeah. I was like, I, you're not going to be the alpha here. I tried to explain to them and they're just like, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we're cats. We, we got it. And, um, but it's just amazing how much stuff's here. And yes, just yesterday I looked out the back door and I saw a whole family of wild turkeys, including like six or seven young, like tiny young wild turkeys going across. And I was just like, oh, okay. And about five feet away, I saw Barry, my cat, just, you know, being like, I know I can't take you on, but I want to. So but I'm badly. stalking. Yeah, but I'm stalking because what I do. Okay. Sorry. We're so happy. I, you know, I, it's a hundred episode. We can have some fun, you know? No, absolutely. <laughs> but just for clarity's sake, because I'm really, I grew up with cats and dogs and all sorts of animals. I'm really a dog person, but. Is it fair to say that every cat in the world thinks it's the alpha? It's fair to say that they they de- definitely think that, and they're definitely not in many situations. They're small cats, so um, although if you were to encounter a big cat in the wild, I feel like that you may not be the alpha in that situation. Oh my, yeah. So um, what a nice little digression we just did there, Richard. Yeah. What did we? I think it's you for number five now. Oh, is it? All right. <clears throat> back, to, uh, back to reality. More than 7 million students in Saudi Arabia returned to school on Sunday, resuming their studies after, two month, after a two-month summer vacation. According to a report, over 6 million students enrolled in general education and 1.36 million students in higher education and technical and vocational training started the new academic year. More than a half a million male and female teachers, as well as administrative staff and supervisors, also resumed their duties. The Ministry of Education and Technical and Vocational Training Corporation started preparations early for the academic year in coordination with local education departments. There's good data in here. 95 new schools and nurseries will be open this year. 63,000 teachers in Saudi Arabia to teach to these this large student base. And it's cool to get a breakdown of students by area with Riyadh having the largest number of students, obviously followed by Jeddah, 700,000 students in uh, Jeddah, Mecca, or the Eastern province with 500,000, Mecca with 422,000, Medina 350,000, Asir 280,000, that's a lot. Um, yeah. it, it's just a cool breakdown in this article and, and actually in the, in the yellow segment, we'll, we'll put the link to this because there's some good stuff in here. Agreed. Um, yeah, there's some interesting stuff going on. And we, again, we talked to, this is the reference, third or fourth reference to the short distance between the, you know, the origination of policy and the implementation implementation of policy. And I was chuckling because you got the school year starting and all of a sudden you have this sort of flood from the general directorate of traffic, which is called Mirror about fines. So like there's a $134 fine if you make noise near schools and then specifically, you know, you know, driving with your, your car radio cranked or whatever, all the things kids do, you know, there's a $1,600 fine if you, um, you know, overtake a stationary school bus, you know, you don't honor that blinking thing. Um, so, 
the other thing that's interesting about this year is women, females, are now, they've been uh, cleared to teach co-ed classes up to fourth grade. So you can sort of see this will move up and move up and move up over time. But, you know, in the past, as as male students have gone through the system, increasingly it was with male teachers. Now they moved up to fourth grade, then a male student can have a have a female teacher and, you know, slow and steady. Yeah. Well, if you get hit with one of those fines, you just sell off a falcon. No problem. You can easily afford it. Uh, but that that is um, that's a good one. And, and again, we'll put the link to that because there's other data in there. I don't want to just sit here and read it, but it's it's um, I mean, it's the education system in Saudi Arabia is really transforming. So very fascinating stuff. Yellow number six, putting a cap on the 100th episode, the 966. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Yes, excuse me. A video published by the UAE, UAE-based The National and, and was sort of widely available on social media, but that's where at least I discovered it, shows Mecca's clock tower, one of the tallest buildings in the world, being dramatically struck by a bolt of lightning amid heavy rains that caused localized flooding. The video, which is played in slow motion, at least several of the versions that I saw, shows a wide and bright lightning bolt hitting the top of the clock tower. It is unbelievable. And there are photos of it online as well that you can see. It's sort of like one of those shocking images where you're like, wow. Rains and thunderstorms have pounded the Mecca region in Saudi Arabia in recent days. Some of the videos coming out of the region of the flooding are pretty wild. So stay safe out there, everybody. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that was pretty spectacular. You you have to think it gets hit all the time because it's gargantuan. Yeah. So I was I was wondering that as well. Like, is this very? I guess it doesn't rain like and have thunderstorms that often. But I mean, I would definitely not want to be on the top of that building during no, any thunderstorm. But I wouldn't mind being down on the ground around it, you know? Yeah. Uh, because you're safe. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Lightning is quite scary, but I don't think, I don't respect it enough. I do stupid things when lightning's going on. Yeah. And this is some of my dad got hit by lightning and, and you know, I should know better, but I'm as stupid as the next guy. Yeah. Like when they play the sound to get off a golf course, I'm like, oh, the, that yeah. means there's going to be nobody in front of me when I try to play. So I told I, I, you, know, my dad got hit by lightning and it was very scary. He didn't die, although he did have some mobility issues afterwards. But he was, um, you know, so we, you know, we, the, the call went out, you know, dad's been hit by lightning and all the kids. This was up in Maryland. So we were all driving up there to see him at the hospital. And we discover later that he gets hit walking off the green. So he's walking out of the green and his putter was grounded. Lightning hit maybe 60 yards away, traveled along the ground, came up through his putty and blasted oh. him backwards. All right, but you, and this is, a, this is what, I guess it's, I guess it's hereditary, the stupidity. The lightning alarm went off on the tee box. So you know that thinking, you and I would probably both do it. Oh, I'll just finish this hole. Yeah, finish and this so, hole and then we'll go. Yeah, in. yeah, and then come in. And so, he, you know, so there you go. You know, you'd think I'd know better. I wonder what the chances are greater of getting struck by lightning or getting a hole in one because uh, I feel like I'm due for a lightning strike now. No, no, no. But I didn't know no, that no. your dad was actually struck and injured by lightning. That's wild. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. So what sort of injuries did he suffer? Like, I mean, you, you said that he, he was- got thrown back uh, and he hit his head on, you know, the little curbs along the path, uh, cart paths. Yeah. 
and actually he wasn't breathing and he was with uh uh the foursome some friends who knew what to do with cpr brought him back and actually when his friend touched him he got burned so my dad was so charged and he you know he had some burns all up and down his torso and everything that the, when his friend touched him to give him cpr he got burned what it's crazy stuff. That is crazy. And how old were you when this went down? Oh, I don't know. He was probably, he died at 83. He was probably 70. Oh my 68. goodness. That's crazy. <laughs> 70. Yeah. He was, I think he was 70. Something wow. I have to actually I have to clarify, but he was probably that. Okay, I guess I'll I guess I'll listen to that siren when it goes off on the golf course now because that is terrifying. And if you think about it, you do have a metal lightning rod on your hand, so well, it's um, true. It's I mean, everywhere yeah. you go, and you have your hole in one, so you've beaten the odds. Maybe you shouldn't tempt lightning. Yeah, maybe that's it. You know, hang it up, <laughs> take up falconry. <laughs> no, no, keep playing. Just just come off when the alarm goes off. <laughs> this was a great one hundredth. And thank you again. You know, we, we, I don't know if we spent enough time thanking everybody at the beginning of the episode, but just to conclude here, thanks to everybody for making this worthwhile and helping us grow and, and really just expanding this, what was essentially just a flyer that we took to read each other what we were learning over the week with our newsletter that you can subscribe to. It's totally free at sustg.com. And we just said, well, sort of making it roll it up into a podcast, see what happens. So thanks to everybody. This is, we really appreciate it. And we are planning on being here for at least a hundred more and hopefully many multiples of that. So thanks everybody. Let's do it. We're grateful. Thank you. Thank you.